Father, we're thankful for the evening and the time to be together, and we're thankful for the fellowship and for the good food, and most of all for the fellowship of believers. And we're thankful for those that are able to be here, those who are able to join us online. And we're thankful for your word and what it tells us about who you are and uh, the things that you have planned, the things that you've made possible for us in the present time. And uh, just ask you to help us to think clearly on the things that we have in your word here tonight. Amen. So last week we had uh, um, we had a very good discussion on the first thing that Paul talks about in uh, verse um, 3, where he says, I give thanks always concerning you, brothers. You should tell people where you are. Oh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy. <clears throat> but he says, even as, he says, your faith grows. We, we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about what it means for your faith to grow. And uh, our conclusion is, is it grows not in terms of the faith, the act of faith itself becoming bigger, but, or the faith itself becoming bigger as though the faith is some substance, like a giant helium balloon or something, but rather that it's growing in terms of opportunities to exercise faith more frequently, more commonly, that you're actually using faith in everyday life. And then we also have then a similar statement. So he says, your, your faith grows abundantly. And then the next one, and he changes from the word grow to the word increases. And your love of each one of you, all each one of all of you, for one another. So he says, your love increases. Probably this one's going to be easy after having discussed what we did on faith last week. What would that then mean when it says that your love increases? Your acts of love are going to be increased. It's going to be more common. In fact, keeping your finger here for just a second and turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. We have this statement. Paul makes a statement in Ephesians 1. He makes it also in the book of Colossians. Ephesians chapter 1, and if you look down in verse 15, Ephesians 1 and verse 15, Therefore I also, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love to all the saints. Now when Paul says, I heard of that, and this is this is real common, when I, when I look at, um, do we have a problem? Okay. Um, when I read commentaries in this, one of the most common approaches that I find among commentaries is they say, Paul's rejoicing that he heard these people believed in Jesus Christ. It kind of looks like that. But the problem with that is, how long had Paul spent in the city of Ephesus? Anybody remember? Three years. He'd spent three years there. And how often did Paul teach when he was in Ephesus? Daily. He taught daily uh, when he was in Ephesus. So he knew these believers really, really well. And so if you understand that, when Paul says, I hear of your faith, he's not hearing about people believing in Jesus Christ for the first time. He's hearing of people that he evangelized and he taught actually living that faith out in everyday life. And it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there are promises in Jesus Christ, not just for the unsaved person, but for you as a believer. 
And so that's the first part of it. The second part of it goes along then with what we're seeing in 2 Thessalonians, not only your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also your love unto all the saints. Um, so obviously, how, how do you hear of your love to all the saints? I mean, what, what does that mean in simple terms? Can you repeat the question? How do you hear about a person's love to all the saints? You see what they're doing in an action. Yeah, you, you, you see or you hear what they're doing in an action. You hear about, oh, they did this for these people, and they did this for these, and they did this for these, and they did this for these. Next question with that is, who are they loving? Who does it say they're loving? One another, the brethren. Well, it, it does that over there, but here in Ephesians 1.10 or 1.15, it says... For all the saints. For all the saints. And who are saints? Believers. Believers. Some believers or all believers? All, all believers. We're all saints because we're all set apart. You don't have to wait for some religious body to look at you and say, oh, you're worthy of being designated a saint. You're already a saint. The minute you believe the gospel, you are set apart in Christ. You don't need somebody to make you a saint. God made you a saint. So he says, it's the love that you have to the saints. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. And this hopefully then answers the next part of this question. He says, and that your love, this is the end of verse 3 again, and that your love increases the love of each one of all of you for, who does it say? Who? One another. We've talked about that. Yes, it is. We've talked about the one another before. Because we have, we, have, um, we have a couple of different words for talking about others. In fact, I um, was going over these this morning in my daily Bible study, that we have the word heteros, which means one that is different. And then we have alelus, that is another or one that is similar. Alleluus was Christ's command to us. Christ's command to us before he departed is command that he gave only to the 11 disciples. He didn't give it to the Jewish crowds. He gave it on the night he was going to be betrayed. His command was to love one another. It, um, it's one of the things that I, that I always think about when I, when I come across that verse. Is, and I think it's one of the places where churches struggle today that a lot of churches think the way we reach the world out there is we go and love them. We reach them by doing acts of love for them. But Jesus Christ said, how do those people know that you're my disciples? It's the love you have among yourselves. And yet, sadly, sometimes there are people that look at churches and they're going, that's a bickering, arguing, fighting, kicking kick you while you're down kind of family. I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, that kind of goes on sometimes in churches. And we it ought to be that people on the outside, as they look at, look at this, they ought to go, those people, they really love each other. They care about each other. They're concerned for each other. It's obvious. We can observe the efforts, the things that they do. And, and uh, if you've lived in a town like Royal City long enough, it doesn't take too long to find out that if something happens, even if you don't think anybody else knows it, everybody else knows it, <laughs> right? 
And so I, this, this is a town where I think something like this becomes maybe even more prominent, that it's there's a really good chance that when you are without ever having to go out and wave the banner and say, hey, look at what we're doing over here for Peggy. Oh, look at what we're doing over here for Gary and Leslie. We don't have to do that. People just, they just find out. I don't know how they find out. They just do find out. I don't know. Maybe they're... <laughs> Because people talk. So I don't know if the neighbor lady across the street's looking out with her binoculars, looking, seeing what's going on across the street. I don't know how it happened. But one or another, they find out, they see about it, word gets around. And so as Paul, likewise then, he says um, that you guys have love for each other. You have love for one another in this regard. Thinking about this. Um Again, he's talking. He's really talking about the fulfillment of that new command. In fact, the the passage I've been going over the last few days over in uh, um, uh, Romans 13 in the in my morning Bible study is uh, been dealing with submitting to government and paying taxes. Two of our favorite things, right? As Christians, is being lining up, especially when our government asks you to do something that you don't particularly like. I mean, we're not talking about telling you to disobey God. We're just saying some requirement that you find just to be tedious, you know? And, and so there's things like that, that, that government asks of us and there is taxes. I don't think any of us, is there, oh, I don't know. Is there anybody in here that loves to sit down and fill their taxes out? You could all, you do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He raised his hand and then he's shaking his head. Yeah. I think the only reason that I've ever in my life ever wanted to pay taxes because I knew that I paid more money in than I than I actually owed, and I knew that I was going to get some of my money back. Then I was pretty eager to get that done and filed. But that's not paying taxes. That's filing your tax, filing your return. All of that to say is that Paul even says in Romans 13 that one of the motivations for obeying government and paying your taxes is love for other believers. And I always think about that as a motivation because, and, I, and I always, I've used myself as an example of this several times. If I, the pastor of the church, if I tend to be obstinate towards the government and tend to be a rabble rouser, and if I tend to be a person and I don't pay my taxes, and the auditor shows up and, that, and he goes, oh, this guy's a pastor. Hmm. Maybe we ought to check out everybody else that attends this church because maybe, and so all of a sudden Gary's getting a call that they're going to come and audit his taxes. Why? Because the guy goes to my church. And so, you know, since we're all in the same church, they're going, oh, maybe he's telling everybody to not pay their tax. I'm just using those as examples. I don't know. All the situation. But you can love other believers by being obedient to government. Do those, And that's just a really good example of just one of multitude of things that you and I as believers can be doing out of love. So, the love that they have for one another. This is what Paul knows about. And he says in verse 4, any comments on that? Any comments on the whole issue of loving one another? Okay, so it comes to verse 4. So that so that we boast in you among the churches of God. Is it wrong to boast? I grew up in a church where we were taught it was wrong to boast. Do you think it's wrong to boast? No. Doesn't Paul say he boasts? Pardon me? Doesn't Paul say he boasts? Yeah. He actually just said it right here. I just read it to you. Oh. 
But the but I guess the question is, is Paul wrong in doing that? What'd you say? All about your attitude and your perspective. That's right. Where are you boasting? That's right. There's a bit of a difference too about boasting in yourself versus other people. Okay, yes. Where did you read it? Was it verse four? Yeah. Verse four. Okay, mine doesn't say boast, so that's why proud. Proudly. Okay. No, it's it's uh, the Greek word to boast. He says we actually boast, we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God. So in other words, when he went to other churches, he says, "Oh, those believers over there, those Macedonians." Now let me show you an example of that boast. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Where? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. Look with me at verse 1. Now we make known to you, brothers, the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Where was Thessalonica? Macedonia. Part of Macedonia. The first city of Macedonia was Philippi. Paul, Paul went to Philippi. After he went from Philippi, the next church he went, city he went and evangelized and started a church was Thessalonica, just to the south. He says, he says, the grace of God given among the churches of Macedonia that in a great proving of affliction, he says, this wasn't easy for them. They were actually going through a really, or are going through a really hard time, a lot of pressure, and the abundance of their joy. <clears throat> a lot of people go through affliction, but they, see, masks don't work here, but they go through affliction, and they're like, oh, whoa, me. they're like Eeyore, you know, from Winnie the Pooh. Woe's me. I know it's sunny now, but it probably will rain, you know. Um, there's some people that they go through life and no matter what's happening, they always are seeing the underside, the underbelly of everything. But he says, these people went through affliction. They went through tremendous pressure, but with joy. And then what's the next thing he says? And the depth of their poverty. He says, these believers were really church or really poor, excuse me, really, really poor. He says, but it abounded in the riches of their, un of their generosity. And, we translate this word generosity, but it's a word that had the idea that they didn't braid something. They didn't, they didn't tie it together with something else. <laughs> Example today in our modern culture. We have um, a lot of people in America. This is around the world. This is, not, it, this is not exclusive, and it's probably been going on through most of the history of the church. But there are people that teach Christians... That if you do A, God will shower down money on you. And we've got this prosperity message that is communicated. And yet this word, unbraided, means that they gave generously, but it wasn't mixed with anything. They had no ulterior motive. They weren't giving $100 to a need, expecting that God was going to give them 1000 back. Everybody get that? I didn't grow up with that. But when I was in high school, I had a I came across a book and I read that book. And man, that guy's talking about all of this stuff and all these things to do. 
and school was coming up, and I still remember to this day that I wanted this brand new pair of these white Nike tennis shoes, canvas, by the way, canvas Nike tennis shoes. Huh, that's crazy. But I wanted those before school started. And well, I've been working all summer. I've been working for the farmer's co-op and I'm thinking, hey, I've got this money, but I'm set, all that money's put aside. I'm not supposed to be touching that. That's for college and all of this. And, and uh, but I'm thinking, oh man, I'd really like that. So I'm going to give seed money. I'm going to take $10 and I'm going to give it to God at church so that God will give me back because I'm reading this stupid book. And I'm going to read, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get rid. That's giving with a braided motive. This word that Paul's talking about has this idea of being generous, but it's not braided. It's not tied with anything. You just give because that's what you, you want to do. You want to participate in that. You're not doing it to get anything in return. And he says, that's the way these people were. He goes on from there. Verse three, by the way, I did get that pair of tennis shoes, but it's just because I ended up working more hours. So before school started, so... And I was like, oh, that was all because of that $10 I gave at church. You know, I hope somebody benefited from the $10, but it, that is that did not help me get the shoes. That teaching is also in the Old Testament law. Because it, in the Old Testament law, if you've obeyed and you tithed and you did all this, you did get prosperity. That's right. And that's all from the law. Yeah. Whereas with us, you remember, how, what does Paul say about his life? Paul says, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be full. I know how to be content in any circumstances. Paul's this chief person that writes half of our New Testament for the church, and yet he knew what it was like to be a needy person. And he's actually the one that writes Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, Timothy, there are people out there that think that by being godly that they're going to get rich. And he says, you run from that teaching. You run away from that teaching. He says it leads to only to pain and sorrow. And I appreciate, and I have to always point this out about Jim, because this is something Jim taught a couple of years ago uh, in teaching the adult class. And I, and I, I never, because I used to say this, God can't trust, most of us Christians aren't rich because God can't trust us with a lot of money because it would ruin us. And you know what that is? Same thing Leslie was just saying. It's the application of the Old Testament. God doesn't give us money because, well, we're not, we're, we're not righteous enough to actually be entrusted with cash. So God's not going to give it to us. And Jim pointed that out. And I was like, huh, that's right. So if a person has or has not, it's just part of what God's plan is for those individuals at that given time. It's not about that that person's done something better than that person particularly, especially with regard to their relationship with God. So he goes on from there in verse 3. He says that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, now, you can give beyond your ability now, because I remember some people that used to attend our church were talking, they used to go to a church in Moses Lake, and there were three families in the, that attended this church just a long time ago, so you probably wouldn't know any of these people, or if you do, this happened so long ago. But all the three of these families ended up declaring bankruptcy. All three of these families had given substantial amounts of money to a particular church in the Moses Lake area. And you know what? And when they went bank, did, did bankruptcy, they were actually required. They actually went after that church and made them pay the money back. They, the church had to pay back the money that they gave. Um, or I don't know. Over the year, over that one year prior, something like that, they had to, they actually went after them. And and the the whole thing was is see those people were given beyond their ability. 
they're in such tight financial place that they're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And yet they're giving money to this church well beyond their means, ridiculously beyond their means. Instead of applying that to their debt or something, they're giving it to this church. If you're a religious person that's greedy for money, that sounds good. <laughs> but if you're somebody that's wise going, hey, God wants you to make good on your debts, then... Mm. So when he says beyond their ability, what does that mean? What does that look like? How would you in the first century, being poor people, how would you give beyond your ability? You're not going to eat as much. Yeah, you're not going to eat as much. You're going to, instead of instead of Campbell's soup, you're going to eat ramen noodles. <laughs> That's Campbell's <laughs> soup down a notch, right? <laughs> Is that where some of them too were selling their houses to give the money and then? No, that happens down in Jerusalem. That happens in the church in Jerusalem. So that they're actually selling their properties and doing that. And those were people that actually had properties to sell that were had some value. So when he's talking about this, he's talking about people that are really poor, and it just means that they're just gonna they're gonna tighten their belt and they're just not going to have as much. Now they're not doing this to give to Paul's ministry. They're giving. To actually share, notice what he goes on, he says in verse 4, but with much encouragement they begged us that they might, and I like this, he uses the word grace here, that they might participate or fellowship in this grace, this ministry unto the saints. In other words, those believers down in Judea were struck by persecution and struck by a famine. And those believers had run out a lot of money down there. And as a, as a result of that, churches in other parts of the world were taking up collections to send down there to help out these believers in Judea that earlier on, yeah, some of these people had been selling their properties to help provide for other people down there as they had need. And so in that setting, this church wants to participate. They hear from, they hear with, when Paul's there with them, they hear about these believers down there in Judea. They hear about the problems they're going through and they want to give. And that, as Peg, I think, gives us the good illustration, they're going to, and that's the, that's the illustration that Peg used, they're going to have to eat not as well. They're going to end up eating ramen noodles a lot. And we've known, we've, Peg and I have known people like that, that they went through college like that, and they probably, they claimed that they probably ate ramen noodles. And, I think she's listening, actually. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Lindsay was the one that said that. I think Lindsay said that. Ramen noodles <laughs> and boxed macaroni and cheese. She just would live good. on that. What? It sounds good. It sounds good. Yeah. But she did that to be able to afford college. See, so I've known people that have made those choices, you know, to not spend so much money. But he says the Macedonian church was doing it not to afford college, but to be able to provide money to some other believers that were poor. So they're poor. And they just don't say, hey, Paul, can we help? And Paul goes, no, 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 I don't need your help. Paul says they begged Paul to participate in this, and they saw it as a thing of grace and a thing of fellowship. Okay, no, stop there. Is that a boast? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you don't have to use the word boast. <coughs> you just can tell about, hey, let me tell you about these believers, and let me tell you about what happened. Let me tell you how they acted. Let me tell you how they responded to this situation. And Paul did boast to the Corinthian. The Corinthian church was a well-to-do church. 
And it was a church that actually had made promises to help with that need over a year ago, and they had not made good on their promises yet. And Paul's not trying to guilt them into it. He's just trying to say, hey, you guys really made a commitment to this, and I'd really like to see you guys follow through. So yeah, there's a boast. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, Paul says, and he's get, he gets done, let's go back to verse 29, so that no flesh should, should, so that no flesh should boast before God, because it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who, that is Christ Jesus, has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, Christ is our righteousness, sanctification, Christ is where we're set apart, and redemption, Christ is the one who redeemed us, and we have redemption in him, in order that, even as it stands written, the one boasting, let him boast in the Lord. If you're a believer in Christ, can you boast in the Lord? You should be able to. You should, yeah. You should be able to say, this is, if, if there is anything to show for this, it's going to be God. Now, I want to ask a question. So when Paul boasts, when Paul boasts in this church, the, the Thessalonian church, that we just looked at that example, when Paul's doing that, let's go back over there real quick to 2 Corinthians 8 as an example. We, we're not going to go through all this again. But when he but when he does this boast, is he is this boast is he boasting in the the Thessalonians the, these Macedonian believers because yeah hey, those believers are so much better than the rest of the believers. There's a key word in there. There is a key word in there that we read, and I don't know if it shows up really clearly in all of your English Bibles, but I emphasized it at least three times that actually pushes the boast back to God. Second Corinthians 8. Hmm? No, it's in verse 4. It's in verse 4. What? Ministry of the saints, and it's connected to that. It's the grace. It's the it's the word grace, which is does not show up in all your translations really clearly that it looks at grace. Yeah, because mine originally was uh, favor of participation, but I switched it. Yeah, my, my English translation translates it privilege also, but it's it's the word grace. In other words, the very opportunity to actually participate and be used by God is a thing of grace. If you're a believer here sitting tonight. You have a spiritual gift. Do you have that spiritual gift because you're better at that thing than everybody else? And God says, well, I'm going to give him that gift. Tim's got the gift of gab. My mom will tell you. She, not all the time, but occasionally she would drive me over to my, my uncle's house and I would sit at the kitchen table with my aunt. And my aunt, I still, we, well, I actually, my aunt was the one that told us this when we stopped at their house many years back in Missouri. And my aunt said, She'd bring Timothy in here, and, and Timothy would sit at the kitchen table. She goes, he'd sit and talk the whole time, 
we were sitting at the table, this little three or four-year-old kid, she says, I would just sit there and just talk her ear off. So because of that, big surprise, right? My wife's thinking, big surprise, yeah. But it was because of that, God gave me the gift of pastor teacher. No, because your gift is a thing of grace. Your ability to serve, whatever gift you have is a thing of grace, and it's not based on your innate natural abilities. There is no spiritual gift of pounding nails, but there's some people that have developed that skill. There's no gift of creativity, though some people are very creative. There's no gift of whatever else, fill in the blanks. You have these spiritual gifts that serve in the body of Christ, and but there's also the opportunities to serve outside the realm of your gift. These people looked at that as a thing of grace. So that takes it back to God. The very fact that they even have anything that they could share with other people and the very fact that they even wanted to share, really, was all a testimony to God's grace at work in their lives. Does everybody see that? So Paul's not boasting these guys because they outgave. You could come and you could read this passage and try to guilt people into giving. If you guilt them into giving... What can you say about that giving? It's worthless. It's not grace giving. It's not a grace giving if you guilt them into doing it. And it's not grace giving if in trying to entice them into giving, you promise them that they can't outgive God. So that means if they give, well, God will reciprocate. That's not grace giving either. You're messing the whole motives up. Paul never did anything. In fact, Paul tried to refuse the gift from these believers because he knew how poor they were. But they insisted on participating because God's work was really going on. So let's go back to a verse we looked at last week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. And I believe this situation, this scenario that we have with the Corinthian church. It, it hasn't happened at this moment, at this point. But, it, it, but what he says here is going to be illustrative of this situation. He says, remembering then your work from faith. See, these people operated by faith, and as they operated from faith, they did a work. And Paul says, we remember that work where you actually were believing a promise from God. Second of all, and your labor from love. Remember, we talked about that last week. You have a work from faith. Love takes that, that, that work and pushes it beyond. So now that it's not just a work, it's a labor. You will exhaust yourself. You will spend yourself in love for other believers. And then, keep this one in mind, because we're going to come to this in just a little bit back over in our main text. And patience from hope concerning our Lord Jesus Christ that you as a believer are going to have to have, or these believers, demonstrated patience. Because as they're serving from faith, laboring in love, it doesn't necessarily always go easy. So you have to have patience. So let's go back to chapter 2, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, excuse me. Any comments or questions at this time? Okay. I hope that means it's clear or not as clear as mud. I hope you all are following. 
So he says in verse four, uh, verse four, then, so that we ourselves then have our boast uh, in you among the churches of God. And then he adds here, just like we remember, he's already talked about their faith and their love. Your faith is is growing. Your faith is in, or your love is increasing. And then it's going to bring in the third thing that he mentioned in First Thessalonians one three, on behalf of your patience and faith in all of the persecutions and the tribulations which you are enduring. So he looks at the, at the Thessalonians and he says, one of the things that we boast about is the fact that as you're doing this, you're actually continuing to demonstrate patience. Now what's patience? Patience is staying under. Okay. Now, patience, patience has been able to remain under something that is negative and maintain the character that God wants you to have. Now there's, I want to look at an illustration of this patience. And I want you to go to Acts chapter 7. And he's going to talk about Joseph. And he's going to say two things about Joseph in this verse. And it's a good verse because it shows you both persecution and tribulation. Just like Paul's talking about. So Acts chapter 7. Let's go to verse 9 when you get there. Acts chapter 7 and verse 9, and it says, And the patriarchs, that is the... <laughs> well, actually, no, this is going to be Reuben and Judah. It's, in other words, it's the brothers. They were jealous of Joseph. So these are, these are all the brothers with the exception of Benjamin. <laughs> so there's ten, the ten brothers of, of, uh, of uh, Jacob going to become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. These then were jealous of Joseph, and they sold him into Egypt. And God was with him. Didn't mean that everything went peachy keen for Joseph down there, because he still ended up being a slave for Potiphar. That's not the same as being a free man. No matter how much liberty and how much Potiphar may have entrusted it with, you're still a slave. Number two, when Potiphar's wife gives him problem, where does Joseph land? Jail. In jail. Prison. He's in prison. And stop and think about that. Did he eventually get placed as head over all the prisoners because he was so exemplary? Yes. But is he still in prison? Yes, he still is in prison. So just, we can look at how God did deliver him in this, but just keep in mind, it's still slavery and it's still imprisonment. So he goes on. And he delivered him out of all the tribu his tribulations and gave him grace and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and appointed him as the one ruling over Egypt and over the whole house. And then came the famine over Egypt and Canaan and great tribulation. So he looks at the famine as also a great tribulation. Now, this is a good place to demonstrate in here. Joseph 
God showed favor to him. God, Joseph is demonstrating this proper character about being what God has for him to do, even when his brothers are persecuting him. Even when his brothers sell him into slavery. Even when he gets turned over by Potiphar to the prison. Does everybody see that? He maintains the right character. So, there's patience under adversity afflicted by other people. But the last set of adversity that was, that was endured, the last set of adversity that came on all of these people, and Joseph is the one that's going to have to deal with this, here, in fact, this even extends up into Canaan, is that there actually is the adversity of a famine. Now, Joseph gets to be the one that's over this. How much adversity Joseph experienced because of that? Probably not like other people, but God calls it an adversity. He calls it a tribulation. It was a tribulation. So that also then helps us understand that a tribulation can be circumstance-related. So tribulations can come as a result of what other people do to you, but tribulation can also involve circumstances subject to a famine, which that happened in the book of Acts a little bit later here, uh, it, which is why the Thessalonians were involved in helping meet the need of believers in Judea. Or a pandemic, yeah, or a pandemic, yes, exactly. So, back over there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. As he's talking about this, this idea of patience, and I've got, or, I've got quite a few verses that we could look at on the, on the issue of patience, and someday I would like to actually, uh, I did this in a Bible study a few years back, we looked at words that are not listed among the fruit of the Spirit, and I know in most of your modern translations, they've replaced the word long-suffering with the word patience. But this particular word that he's talking about patience is not listed among the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it's probably in a lot of your modern English translations, it's probably translated endurance. They translated endure. I'm going to silence my phone here. They translated endure probably rather than patience, but we have another word at the end of verse 4 where we actually have a word endure or hold up under. It's a, it's a, different, a different connotation. So somewhere down the road, we, we will take a couple weeks, maybe three weeks, because I think last time I taught it took maybe four weeks for us to look at all these different examples of patience, because it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an important thing to learn. Because long-suffering, or patience as it's translated in modern Bibles, as part of the fruit of the Spirit, almost always involves other people. It involves what other people do to you. The things you have to handle with regard to other people. Patience does? No, long-suffering. Long okay, I heard you wrong. I'm yeah. patience, patience normally involves circumstances or endurance, as some of your modern translations uh, uh, translate this or handle this. He says, so we boast in you, he says, because of your endurance, or your patience, depending on how your Bibles translate that, and your faith in, two things then, your persecutions, and in your tribulations, your adversity which that adversity can be affected by other people, such as Joseph's brothers. Uh, Stephen applied tribulation then to what his brothers did to him in causing him harm, but also then to the famine. 
both of those things fell under the realm of tribulation. So tribulation has some breadth to it. Pressure, you can get pressure from circumstances, you can get pressure from people. Persecution, however, is not circumstances, strictly. Persecution is because somebody else is chasing you down. I mean, because that's literally what the word, literally the Greek word persecution means to chase, to chase after. But it came to have a negative connotation that they're chasing you with the intent of doing you harm. Now, there are some places in the New Testament that the verb form of the word persecute is used in a positive way where Paul says you should be pursuing this. So you have to kind of determine by context, is this negative or positive? Usually it's very easy to understand. We get, you You don't need any kind of education in figuring that out. Is it, it's the same word, persecute? Persecute, yeah. So if it's used, if there's a negative thing going on, we usually translate it persecute. If you're pursuing something positively that you're being told to do, then it's, you're chasing it down. You're pursuing it with a good intent. So you always have to interpret it by context. And usually it's really obvious when you read it in that way. So this is going to be a lead-in now. Verse 4, when he's talking about this in the midst of your persecutions and tribulations, because he's going to spend quite a bit of time in the next few verses here detailing. Well, he doesn't really detail. He doesn't give any real details. He just states very plainly, that these believers were going through a lot of persecution at the hand of others. And you left off the end, I think, that they were boasting on for everything they were going through, that they were enduring. Yes. Not that they were failing, right? But they're boasting of the ones that they go through. That's right. Now, in order to remain under something, what's one of the things, what's one of the things that you would need from God? Um, you yeah, you'd need power. Leslie said over here, you'd need power. Where do you need that power? In your back? In your arms? In your mind. You need it in your minds. Your, your body may be failing. But if you mentally have this power from God, which is where God gives you power, has God ever given anybody physical power? Yes. Well, Samson, yeah, there's a good example. And there's been other times. But for new for believers, church believers, believers that make up the church, is is there evidence that he gives us physical power? I I don't know of any examples. You can correct me if you can come up, come up with some, but I don't know any that he gives anybody physical power particularly. He gives us power here. He gives us power to keep this together. In fact, one of the words that's used a couple of different times is the word for gird or to put a girdle on around your mind and around your thoughts. You do that to keep this together so that you don't, I always put it, so you don't end up with a mental hernia when you're going through a lot of crazy hardship. And you go, ah, I can't take it anymore. And you end up with a mental hernia and you go to pieces and you fall down on the floor and bawl and cry. And yeah, adults do that too. Mm -hmm. uh, some of us don't. Some of us have tantrums and we go and kick things or whatever. But, you know, different people respond different ways. None of those are Christ-like. Falling down on the floor and just bawling your eyes out because I can't take it anymore. That's not Christ-like. Crawling and having a, a fit and going around and kicking things and putting punching holes in the wall. Is that Christ-like? No, those aren't, that's not Christ-like. So there's a lot of ways that we respond. Curling up in a ball in the corner and just sitting. 
just isolating yourself. I can't, I can't face the world. I can't face the world. Is that Christ-like? No. None of those are Christ-like. And yet all those and probably a lot of other situations that I have not thought of and thrown out don't demonstrate Christ-likeness. Patience is the ability to demonstrate Christ-likeness even in the midst of adversity. Did Jesus grouse and complain when he had to travel with his disciples and the sun went down at the end of the day and they had to step off of the side of the road, clear away the big rocks, wrap their cloaks around them nice and tight against the cold night air and sleep out on the ground? No. And did they do that? Yeah. He even told the one guy, I'll come follow you. He says, I just want you to know, foxes have holes, birds have their nests. Son of man, I don't even have a place to lay down. I don't have a, I don't have an, I don't have an entourage. I got students that are traveling with me. That's what disciple meant. They're students. And so Jesus didn't do that. And when people mistreated Jesus, he retaliated always, didn't he? No, he didn't. He was silent. Prophecy from Isaiah, he was silent like a ewe before her shears. And I just recently watched a video where they were shearing sheep and the sheep are just kind of, they're not making a bunch of noise. And they're just, they wrestle those things all over and flipping them around and shearing the stuff. And those things are just, I'm going, wow. They really are quiet when they're getting sheared. That's crazy. But he said, that's the way Jesus was. And when Jesus went to the cross, Jesus said seven things. And not one of them was hostile. Not one of them was, was retaliatory. The very first thing he said is while they were nailing him to the cross, the Roman soldiers are nailing him. And what does he say? What does he ask the Father? Forgive them. Forgive them. He never says anything hostile to anybody of the seven things he says from the cross. How many of you would be like that? I, I wonder, I was looking at myself going, man, would I be spewing mad? Would I be yelling at them? Go ahead and kill me. You're going to send me to heaven early. Go ahead. I don't know. I trust I wouldn't. I trust I'd take it with patience. It's a quality that when we are exercising faith and love, and we're looking not only at persecution and the way people treat us, but the difficult circumstances that we also face in life, those difficult circumstances, as we said, might be economic, might be that there's a famine going on, it might be a pandemic, as Ronnie was pointing out. It, it might be because people don't treat us well, there's, so there's just this general mistreatment in general by people, might be health problems that we're facing, might be job problems, but there's a lot of different adversities that face us and patience ought to be what characterizes us in the way that we face all these different things. We can demonstrate Christ-likeness despite that. And Paul says that they did, and he boasted in the fact that they were patient and that they were holding up under these things. He uses two words. The thing to remain under at ease, that's patience, and to hold up under it. Paul says they were doing both. And he says we boast about that because both of those require power from God. You don't have it in yourself to have that kind of patience under those circumstances long term.
probably with a lot of things that go on right now in our world, I would say most of us as Christians have it pretty easy. You and I do not know what it's like. I mean, think about that. Sunday comes, we go to church, we roll up. Is there anybody outside with a notebook across the street marking down the name of everybody that goes through the door of your church? I've known, there was a guy I knew, growing up in Iowa, that came from communist East Germany when he was, I believe, 12 years old or 13 years old. And he said they had, uh, they had a government official that stood across to the street and would write the name down of everybody every week that went into the doors of that little church. Because now those people could not advance in their jobs. Those people could not, students that went there could not go to college. There were different things that they were just, you can't do this. You can't do any of these things that allow you to in any way advance in their society. How many of you are worried when you go to church on Sunday that you're going to have a squad of men that are going to bust the back door down of your church and come in and grab you outside, drag you out, beat you up a little bit in the process, throw you in the back of their vehicles and haul you off and put you in jail? For talking about Jesus Christ and gathering the name of Christ. Are we worried about that? Zero. Yeah. What? It's kind of going that way during this latest thing. Yeah. But but it hasn't happened. I mean, we haven't. We actually haven't anybody come and. Not here. No, no. other places. Yeah. But there are believers around the world. I mean, that this is a, they get together in a regular thing. They, they face these kind of challenges. Actually, um, I was on a Zoom call. It was a month ago. I actually wanted to tell you guys, but um, it was a missionaries thing, and just all these missionaries were talking. And this one family was in Africa. So I think somewhere in Africa. I could be wrong. Anyway, it was a closed country, meaning you can't be a Christian. And um, they said that they did this plant, church plant, and it was. There was lots of different churches, and they said, yeah, three of their pastors are in jail right now because they're Christians wow. and don't know when they would get out. And, I don't know, it would be tough, like, being, yeah, like, doing that, and then, and you're in jail. Yeah. I... I think the first year or second year we were here, um, Soviet Union collapsed, the Eastern Bloc had collapsed, and there were pastors uh, using what, what Faye's saying came, brings us to mind. And there was a movie that we watched at my aunt and uncle's that they had. It was the story of these three pastors that had been in the former in Russia, in the former Soviet Union. And uh, they spent 10 years, they spent 10 years in a gulag in um, eastern Russia, over there where it's really cold, they couldn't see their children. Their wives were allowed to come one day a year to visit them through the fence. And that was it. And they lived like that for 10 years, and all of it was for preaching the gospel. So all of that, just, just to remind us, that is, we're, we're talking about this, and the thing is, is and, and we could all go through that. There's nothing, in, there's, God's made no promise to us anywhere in the Word of God that you and I are exempt from ever having to face this. We could face these kind of things. 
And it might not even be something that's authorized. It could be for whatever reason. It could be just local people around here. Get fed up with Christians and just go around and start making your lives miserable. It could happen like that, even though it's completely illegal. Or it could be authorized. It could be a variety of things. But the point is, uh, it's an encouragement, I think, from what Faith's sharing about that, for us when we're praying on a regular basis as believers to be remembering your brothers and sisters that we don't see, that we don't know. We don't know them by name. We don't know all where they are. But they are enduring things like this. And to be knitting your hearts together with those believers as you pray, pray to God for their encouragement. But also for you as a believer to be living the Christian life in such a way that if this is God's plan for us, my, my hope and I trust yours is that Christ is coming back for us any day now. And we're living with that anticipation. But if his plan is for me to go on living a few more years and to face some adversity in my life, maybe adversity to the extreme, is to be living the Christian life now so that I live that out then. I always think it's a lot easier, and I've, I've heard other people at church say this, because I've watched different people in our church face some real hardships in their life of, to varying degrees. And they say they're thankful for all the years that God has taught them different things about himself, because it was, it was hard to bring all that to mind and remember that when they were going through adversity. But because they had, you know, for many years learned about who God is, learned about what God's doing. It helped them as they faced challenges, hospitalizations, deaths, things like that. And uh, some of that for, for a number of the people, this happened, the, they were going through, they'd been learning these things long before I ever met them. They'd been coming under that kind of teaching and learning those things. And so it's just an encouragement for you and I to be getting to know God better in our daily lives right now so that if it is God's well, let's put it this way we should finish with this this is always a good verse second Thessalonians second Timothy chapter 2 and some of you are going to say how is this a good verse second Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. Oh, I apologize. This is not the verse. This is not the verse I wanted. This is not the one I wanted. Um, it's 1 Timothy, and it is in chapter 4, I believe. I hope this is 1 Timothy 4. Um, and I'm looking for the statement that all those who determine or desire to live godly, maybe it was over in, first, maybe it was in 2 Timothy 3, I apologize, this is off the cuff. I don't have this written down. Second Timothy 3. First Timothy 3. Thank you, Peggy. Oh, because that's about the qualifications for bishops and deacons. Second Timothy 3. I could, oh, there, uh, it's just the one. Well, I'm not finding the verse. I apologize for leading you on that rabbit trail. We'll find it afterwards. We'll share it. It's the statement that Paul makes, and I think it's an important verse. 
to remind us that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12. Thank you. All those that are desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. doesn't say might be. says will be. Simple future tense. And will be persecuted. There's going to be persecution for living godly. doesn't say the persecution is always of the same quality, the same uh, seriousness or strength, but everybody suffers persecution. It may be mocking at the hand of co-workers, family. It may be something very overt, maybe being beat up or being arrested. But there is some degree of persecution for all believers that wish to be persecuted. In fact, Paul when he's over in Acts, and it's in Acts chapter 14, he reminds the believers over there that it is necessary that through adversity we enter the kingdom of God. You don't have to seek it out. It's going to find you, because it's part of God's, part of God's method for growing us. You're a real quiet group tonight. Maybe I didn't have enough questions for you, but that's okay. But uh, I trust it helps you think about growing faith, increasing love, towards one another, and in the midst of doing those, continuing to have patience. Patience meaning you don't quit exercising faith and you don't quit having love just because things are hard. <laughs> you, keep, you keep pursuing those things that God set in front of you. And the Thessalonians did. Any comments or questions here at the close? Well, you never know what from one week to the next. Well, you really are quiet tonight. Okay. Let me silence this or end this part.